uh, in the book of Revelation progressing through. These are future, future events. And there's a series of judgments that are described in the book of Revelation. There's called seal judgments, trumpet judgments, and then vile judgments. Here, these last seven. And in between reading about these judgments and cataclysmic things that are happening on the earth, in between those first two phases, the, the seals and the trumpets, we learned of kind of a pause in the book, learned some characters that are going to be upon the earth during that time and some that are already in existence like the dragon who's the devil, uh, a sun-clothed woman who's Israel. Uh, the dragon wants to destroy Israel. The devil hates Israel. And, and then we learned about the beast uh, coming out of the earth. Uh, pardon me, the beast coming out of the sea, which is the Antichrist. And then a beast coming out of the earth, which is a false prophet. It's like the Antichrist vice president type. And we learned about them. We learned about some people during, on the earth during the time, the 144,000 uh, men who are preaching the gospel. And then now we are coming to, uh, in Revelation, <clears throat> there was a, also, by the way, in chapter 14, there's angels flying in heaven, preaching the gospel and pronouncing uh, future things that are coming. And now as we come to Revelation chapter 15, this is a very kind of very serious moment. The whole book is serious, but it's a very serious moment, Revelation 15. Um, let's just read it and then we'll, we'll get into this. We'll start probing into it and I'll try to give you some analogies here. Revelation 15, it says, <clears throat> John says, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels, having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee. For thy judgments are made manifest. And after that I looked... And behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels came out of the temple, having seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen, and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God who liveth forever and ever. And the temple was filled with, the, with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. What we're going to look at tonight, we're going to consider this sign that John saw. We're going to see uh, four parts, and then the last thing we'll discuss is some takeaways. We're going to see the sea of glass. 
The Song of Moses, it's right there. It's kind of already alliterated right in the text. The Sea of Glass, the song that they sing, the seven angels, and the smoke of the glory of God in the temple. And then we'll do some takeaways. So we look at this. When I look at this, this passage, I, t- I said this comment this morning uh, about Marvel comments. So I'm learning that there's a difference between DC and Marvel superheroes, right? Am I right here? Superman is not Marvel, he's DC. Is that right? Okay, just want to make sure. See, that is a controversy that remains, you know, or a, 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 a distinction that remains. So, all right, so I guess there's DC superheroes and there's Marvel ones, okay? And I remember as a kid, uh, there was this, on the southeast corner of, of Country Club and Main Street in Mesa, used to be called Captain Hero Subs. Did anybody in the world besides my mom and I ever go to Captain Hero Subs ever in their life? These people, all right. All right, now it's a Mexican food place, and it's mm, still good, So, uh, but it's no subs. So it used to be called Captain Hero Subs, and so mom and dad sometimes would went to go there. And I remember going in there as a, this was one of my earliest memories, looking up on the wall, all these posters, Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, Hulk. Iron Man, somebody else. There's Wonder Woman. Don't look at her. Anybody else? Somebody else. You know, there are all these, all these posters of these superheroes. And all, you know, I got a few of them in my room. And mom, mom and dad at the time lived in East Mesa, like Broadway and Sossman or something like that out there. And uh, I remember in my room, again, one of my earliest memories was having like uh, Superman, Batman, Spider, a few of those posters in my room. And I'd go to sleep at night, and kind of those were the last things I'd look at, you know, and I'd go to sleep. And so, and uh, I have, my mom could tell you stories of me trying to be the Incredible Hulk, you know. Uh, she could tell you that. But I, I remember these, these superheroes, these Marvel and DC uh, characters. Uh, but Marvel Comics was started out as something else in 1939. It was called whatever, changed the name a couple times. Then by 1961, it became officially Marvel Comics. And they got a lot of comic books. And maybe some of us have read them when we were younger. Now kids are, uh, well, it's all over the place, right? I mean, it's, they're making a lot of movies about it and um, Captain America and all that. And everybody, everybody. I mean, it's like it's endless now. You can just keep going on and on. And the, you know, a lot of stories. And, and, it, and it's entertaining to an extent. It's highly profitable um, entertainment. Uh, the comics, the merchandise, and the movies. And then the shows. They have these shows of, uh, that are related to uh, these superheroes. Tons of money it's generating. Marvelous. Uh, and, and for many, again, it, they're fascinated with the, the, the characters, the superheroes, the, 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 the plots, the... Uh, you know, what's going to happen next and how's this person's going to, you know. And, and But in spite of all, let's just be honest here, in spite of all that, they call it Marvel, which means, wow, amazing. In spite of all the money it generates and the fascination it has, it's still all fictional, 100% fictional. Now, we got to remind ourselves that, kids. It's not real. It's fictional. Um, I'm not saying you shouldn't watch it. That's up to your parents. I mean, we have a certain standard and certain thing that we're going by, but it's not real. It's Marvel. It's wow. It's not real. 
But here, John said, look at verse 1, I saw a sign in heaven, great and marvel, marvelous. That means fascinating. Great means immense. And it causing wonder and amazement. And this is real. This is not a religious comic book. This is real. This really exists. And the superheroes here are true. And so let's consider this marvel here that John sees tonight. Again, what does he say in verse 1? He says, I saw another sign in heaven. It was a marvel to me. It was marvelous. It involved, verse 1, he's given the overview. Verse 1 is the overview. It involves seven angels having seven la- the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. So what is he saying? I saw a sign. A sign in the Bible, he says a sign. A sign is an expression of an event that's going to be coming up. One of the prophets would sometimes do something. They would do a sign. You know, Ezekiel did some interesting signs. I think Jeremiah and Isaiah, they did a sign. Maybe it was almost like a pose or they would build something or they would dress a certain way and they'd be like, what's going on with that? He says, this signifies such and such thing coming up. John sees a sign of this scene here. We're going to look into that. What is it about? It is about... It's astonishing, and it's about seven angels having the seven last plagues. A pl- doesn't, plague doesn't mean all these poor angels have diseases or they're giving away diseases. It's not, it's not so much talking about that. It's the plague, the word plague means a strike, a, 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 um, a blow, the last divine blows upon humanity here in this universal sense, besides the war in Armageddon. And one last war at the end of the millennium, besides those two wars, these are the seven last systematic plagues on the earth. For in them, look what it says at the verse 1, what about it? In them is filled up the wrath of God. That means it, all right, the wrath of God is brought to a close. It's filled up, and we're wrapping this thing up here, of this systematic tribulation on the earth. And it's real. So he's fast. There's a, the marvel of the sea. Notice this that he sees. Verse 2. This is the first thing he's marveled by. I saw, as it were, a sea of glass. You see that in verse 2? As it were. In other words, what John, again, remember this. John's seen something in heaven. He's seen something on the earth. When he sees stuff in heaven, he's just like, um, it's kind of like as it were. And he, then he does an earthly expression that we would understand. Now, what John is looking at is something literally out of this world. As it were a sea of glass, it's like a huge, vast um, expanse of crystal, like a vast expanse of a crystal platform. Now, remember he said, I believe it was chapter 4 or 5, he saw this. Sea of glass where God's throne was set. The only thing on it was those seraphims, those beasts that were worshiping the Lord, and then the elders, and then the Lord. Now he sees this where it was placid before. It's not placid anymore. It's a sea of glass, and it has this fiery appearance, glass-light expanse with this fiery appearance, and it's an it's the environment is showing, when he says again, what is he saying? I saw as it were a sea of glass mingled with fire. Notice what he says, mingled with fire. So he's, you see this big, 
beautiful, shimmering expanse, but there's, it's, it's also reflecting fire. So it's showing that God's presence is no longer, whereas before it seemed peaceful, it's no longer placid, but something's heating up. Something is kindling on this transparent crystal platform, huge crystal platform. That's what John said he saw. But then he sees, now see that right there, he's like, boy, that looks like something. I don't know if I'd want to go stand over there. This, I mean, some people, when they see a clean floor, like, ooh, do I go walk on this clean floor? Or now you have this sea of glass and God's presence is there and there's evidence of fire. Like, do I even go over there? But here, though it shows evidence of God's, with this fire, I think is symbolic of God's wrath kindling. And something's, something's kindling. Though that be the case, there's people safely residing there. Look what it says. The sea of glass is occupied by, by these, uh, verse 2, them that had gotten victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. So at this point, it is at least, at least martyrs who after three and a half years in the tribulation have died. It could be those before, but it's a, at minimum people who died in the last three and a half years of the tribulation time who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, they said yes to the Christ and no to the Antichrist. They said yes to to Jesus and no to the beast. They said yes to taking um, Christ as their Messiah and no to taking the, the mark. They said yes to Jesus even if it meant being poor and persecuted and no to the Antichrist even if it meant taking his mark and being profitable for a while. They said no to the right per, to the to, they said no to who they're supposed to say no to and they said yes who they're supposed to say yes to. And they suffered a consequence for a short time, but now they're safely residing in a place that seems fearful, safely there. Stand on the sea of glass. Let's just pause a second. This always reminds me it probably what it came down to on earth at this time is the difference between two fears. So much of my life comes down to the difference between two fears. Am I going to fear God? That is in a reverential sense, like I care more about what he thinks and what he's going to do than man, or am I going to fear man? If we fear man so much, we tend to dismiss what God wants from us if we fear God, we won't, we won't be so affected by the, the beck and call of man and the whims of the world. The difference is they did not fear the, the, the beast, the Antichrist, the, the Antichrist and the false prophet. And they didn't fear the high-pressure tactics of the world. They feared God. And while they didn't fear them, they suffered some pain and some consequence and ridicule and shame in the world's eyes. That was short term, and now they're enduring, now they're enjoying a more lasting benefit standing before God and the one who matters. 
Whereas people on the earth at this time are going are to say, eh, to God, even though they hear an angel preach the gospel, even though they hear the two prophets by the temple preach the gospel, even though they hear the 144,000 preach the gospel, they're going to say, eh, and they don't fear God, and they're going to fear and be mesmerized with the beast, the world itself, Babylon, this world system we're going to look at, and the false prophet, and they're going to fear and respect them, enjoy temporal benefits from that the pleasures of sin for just a season, and they're going to die and have to stand before this God whose platform is a fiery surface, has the appearance of. The sea of glass, wow. So there's the, John was marveled, wow. You know, I try to pull up, I, have, I'm trying, I try my best to put a few graphics up. We don't have any tonight. I looked up, I'm like, there's nothing. I, I can't even, people, I don't know why people can't even imagine this. With all the technology, can't you get something there? Impressive? I can't find anything, but anyways. Number two, the next thing, the next marvelous is this song that they sing, verse 3. This is a marvel. They're singing in front of God, the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb, and it goes on to tell us their lyrics. Well, let's consider the fact that these, all these tribulation martyrs that got victory over the most intimidating people on earth are now up in heaven, not fearful of God, safe with God, and they're singing in front of the Lord, and they have harps to accommodate them. They're singing, it says, the song of Moses. What do you think that was talking about, singing the song of Moses? What do you think that's talking about? It's related to deliverance. You know, when all of Israel was in Egypt, Moses was used to deliver them out through the, the uh, initiating these ten plagues and the of course, the last one, they're delivered through the blood of an innocent lamb. And the final aspect was passing through that sea. And once they passed through that sea that was divinely parted, passed right through that sea, got to the other side, God drowned Pharaoh and his armies. It's interesting. It's almost like it's a retribution for Pharaoh drowning a bunch of little babies before that, years before that. God drowned them. And once they got through that divine passage over the Red Sea, looked back and the waters enclosed in on Pharaoh, his chariots and all of his men. Now they can sing. Now they can say, we know we are delivered so long. (laughs) And they sing after they have escaped the disturbance of Pharaoh and Egypt, the pressures of the culture of Egypt, they can sing. And I think that's what you see here. These people on earth who are disturbed by the pressures of the Pharaoh of the, of the future, the beast, and the Egypt of the future, the whole world, they're going to be pressuring non-beast followers and Christians, pressuring them and persecuting them. Once they die and get delivered of that and they stand before the Lord, it's like, we're done now. We're, you know, the, the beast and the Antichrist and the ungodly might as well have been drowned in the sea and they can sing Look, let's just say this. We know we're delivered right now. We already know we're delivered. We already know we're saved. And so we can sing now. We can sing of His deliverance now. Notice the words here. Let's just walk through the... Look what they sing. Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. What do you think about the works of God? Do you think they're great? If you think about them long enough, start pondering them, you'll, you'll realize they are great. Notice they said, great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Some people on earth are mighty, but only God is almighty. They sing about the Almighty One. 
just and true. Just means judicial. And true are thy ways, thou king of saints. God is just. God is true. Not everybody else in the world is judicial. Or sometimes we try to be and we fail. Not all of us are always true. Sometimes we fail in being true. But God is just and true in all His ways, thou King of saints. I like verse 4. They're still singing. Now it's a question. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? Isn't that a good question? With what we know about God, with what we know about the Bible and the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, even what we've learned in Revelation, you'd start thinking, who wouldn't fear God? Who wouldn't fear God? Let's answer the question. They're singing, who would not fear thee? It's almost like, what kind of imbecile? What they're saying, what we can say is, who wouldn't fear him? Somebody who probably fears men more would not fear God. Who would not fear God? Somebody who's hard-hearted. And we see that in the text. You'll see it in the next chapter. People go like this to God again. Who would not fear God? Somebody who's proud. Who would not fear thee, they say. Somebody who loves their sin more. No! That's who would not fear God. We're called to fear the Lord. Somebody said, when you realize, when you fear God, you end up having nothing else to fear because your greatest issue is taking care of. I'm in this right relationship with God because I fear God. That is, I respect Him. I care about what He says, thanks, and commands more than anything else. And I know that uh, He will reward me and I'll, you know, I'll stand before Him one day. And so that any, all the backing calls of men are smaller, not that you don't respect people, but they're smaller compared to what God commands of thee. Good question in their song. Who shall not fear thee? Then they give a reason. For thou only, look at verse 4, art what? Holy. You know, we're called to be holy. We're called, that is, you know, be separate, be distinct in all manner of conversation. It's not holy, is not just, well, when you're saved, you're considered holy in God's sight. That's true. We're also called to live that way. 1 Peter 1.15 teaches us. But he says, they say, Lord, for you only are holy. Like God is uniquely holy. He is, holy means unlike anything else. They said for all nations, what does it say? All nations will what? Come. And worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. They are disclosed, they're revealed. You know, upcoming, from this point in the book, the millennium will be coming, and all nations will eventually come and worship before the Lord. During the millennium, all nations will worship the Lord. So there's their song. And now John's fat, so he's marveled by their song. He's marveled by the third thing of four, the angels. The seven angels. And this is a very solemn moment now. All of it is, but in particular now. Look at verse 5. So he saw, the, he saw the platform, the sea, the crystal sea. He sees them there. He sees them singing. And now he sees something else. The temple of the tabernacle of God. Verse 5. I looked and behold the temple. A lot of T's here. Three T's. The temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. Now it's talking about what they built is a temple on earth, which has been destroyed in Israel. There is a similar thing in heaven for God, where God manifests His presence. And it's much more glorious. 
And it said, he, John sees the, I see the inner sanctum, the dwelling place of God, in particular the inner sanctum, and I see seven angels coming out of it. In other words, they're coming out of God's office. <laughs> He's fascinated by these seven angels coming out, verse 6. I, and the seven angels came out of the temple having seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. It's like a breastplate type of thing. Verse 7, And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God who liveth forever and ever. What I remember, how many of you have ever been to the Titan Missile Silo in south of Tucson? Anybody ever been there? It's called Titan Missile Silo. It's a museum now. Anybody? Raise your hand. Anybody? Brian? It's pretty neat. I think it's still there. Let me tell you a little bit about it for a moment. I'd like to go back again and visit it. Um, it is, so we had, in fact, Ivan worked at one, right, in Wyoming, the missile silo. He worked at a missile silo in Wyoming. We used to have... United States used to have these underground missile silos around our country. Maybe even in, we may have even, I, I bet we had, I, we probably had some in, in Alaska. But, uh, so basically it's kind of like a, a hidden underground place where there's a big old missile. We had a huge one here south of Tucson. And it was, I read, it was the largest land-based nuclear missile um, ever used by the United States. Well, it wasn't used, but ever, you know, staged. Huge. Um, it's, Titan was an intercontinental nuclear ballistic missile. It was in use, it was staged and ready for use from 1963 to 1984. And then it became, they removed the warhead and it basically became a museum. So what it is, again, it's the land. I haven't been there in a long time, but basically the land is flush. You're like, where is it at? You go underground. And the, there's a whole, there's a, in fact, you can pull up on the Internet kind of a schematic of, of the missile and the, the offices and the dwelling plate. It's, a, it's all like an underground building. And there's a huge missile. I think it's a, a, about, it says 103 feet long. I don't know if that included the warhead, but that's long. That's big. It's now inactive. It could, it could accomplish, uh, the warhead could blow up 9 megatons. Sounds like a lot. But when I went there, in fact, let me read you this real quick. This is interesting. The facility, the Titan Missile Silo facility, was at its highest state of alert. Listen to this. Was at its highest state of alert in November 22, 1963, when President John F. Kennedy was shot. You know, we're like, okay, what's going on? Why is our president shot? When that happened, when the shooting of JFK broke, the keys used to launch the missile were ordered to be placed on the tables at the launch consoles to prepare for a possible launch. Pentagon did not know yet whether the Soviet Union had committed this act of war by our president dying, so the keys, but the keys were not, however, placed in their switches. So let me explain something. Uh, the best way I can with the memory I have, when I went and visited there, 
at the Titan missile site, they take you down and you go look around at stuff and you can see the big old thing and, and they take you into kind of the control place where the guys sit down to push their buttons and pull their levers to, to launch this thing. And part of the thing of launching it, again, trying to explain it the best I can, involves two men sitting far apart from each other with two keys, with probably some, um, the idea is some codes and whatnot, and they have to punch in their codes, receive, probably receive some, some certain code from a president and somebody else, and punch in their codes and turn the keys at the same time, and then the, the countdown begins, and that's in, it's in process. And that thing's going to launch and go to wherever it was programmed to by whoever told them uh, to program it to such and such place. In other words, that missile silo is not just like, you know, Cletus and Murtis sitting in there, and there's like, hey, the president called me. He said we can shoot it any time we want. Let's try it. You know, it's not like that. This is serious stuff. All right? So... When, I just remember when I was down there and they explained it to me, I got all, oh, ooh, this is serious stuff here, man. You know, he's got the key and, he got, and the, even the key doesn't come from just anywhere. They're not hanging up like out in the public here. They, they get the key in a special spot. And I mean, it's every little step is a big deal before they launch. And it was just so sobering to, to, to watch, just to learn of that when I visited the museum. I'm just saying that because we're reading the Bible. We're reading about this moment. It's a real moment that's going to happen. Again, this isn't amusing, amusing fiction. This is a real moment where it's like John's watching something in heaven. It's like, we're going to launch something. And these angels come out from God's office, from the inner sanctum, from the temple, the tabernacle, the testimony in heaven. They come out, and they're given these seven vials. And they're, they're not just like sloppy. I mean, angels, come on. They're, they look priestly. They look professional. They look high-ranking. They look royal. They got the girdle, the golden girdle, and all this other stuff, and they look, this is serious business. And they come out, and they have these golden vials. And I think the vial, some, as a side, some of the translations say bowls, saucers, and I keep looking it up, like, am I, am I reading the right Greek word? And it, a vial just means a vial, man. It's like a taller, and, it, you know, if you carry something toxic or something deadly, have you ever tried carrying water in a saucer? I mean, you're like, it's going to spill real easy, or a bowl even. If you, if you have it in a vial, okay, that's a little different here. I think there's seven vials, like our Bible translates it, okay? So they're carrying these seven vials, and this is some deadly stuff here. But I want you to know it's coming from God. Though it's deadly, it's ever still righteous. Here, this is what they have coming. Well, it apparently went to the seraphim. The seraphim handed it to the angels. The angels come walking out. That's the order here that we're being described. But it comes from the Lord. And it says there again, one of the four... Um, Verse 7, one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels the seven golden vials full of the wrath of God who liveth forever and ever. So it is, here's what I'm trying to say. This Titan missile silo, it was no light thing. It would, it would never happen. It would have been no light thing 
for these two men and the staff of the missile silo to do their process of preparing for launch and, and initiating this launch after being authorized. It was no light process if we were to launch one of those nuclear missiles under, from underground to go whatever to another continent, to Russia or whatever. There would be no light process. Same thing here. This is not a comical moment. This is, and it's no light thing that God is going to do. You see, what's the big deal, Pastor? Well, we're going to get into chapter 16 in, in two more Sundays. And the things that are dropped on humanity are incredible, unlike any other. But I want you to say that God, God has been long-suffering. The God of this book is a long-suffering God with usward. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's already, I'll say it again, he's already, an angel's preached the gospel. 144,000 preached the gospel. The two at the temple are preaching something. And the, by and large, many men are saying no. So, all right, put the keys in, so to speak. Punch in the codes, and we're going to launch this. So these angels have their vials, and they're going to pour them on the earth. This plague upon men who took the mark, they're going to get a cancerous thing on their body now. This plague on the sea turns to blood. All the creatures die. This plague on the natural, all the fresh water, all the fresh water gets to turn to blood. Because you know what God says? It seems like the beast, the antichrist and the false prophet in the world likes to drink the blood of my people. I'll give them plenty of blood to drink. This is what's happening in chapter 16. Those are just the first few. My point is, is that God does not just do this haphazardly. It is done after long suffering, much long suffering. And then look at this. There's not a lot, much I would comment, but just the fascination of verse 8. He's, there's a marvel here. The fourth one is the smoke filled the temple. The temple was filled with smoke. This isn't pollution. This is, a, this is an expression of God's glory. Smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no man was able to enter into this place, into the temple. So the plagues, the seven angels were fulfilled. So John is marveled, again, at this scene in heaven, the crystal sea, those sing, the martyrs singing there, they're safe there, they're praising the Lord. Then these angels come out. And they're staged to pour out these vials that we'll get into in chapter 16 in a couple of weeks. And the temple, nobody can go into that temple until those things are all done. God is in this mode of carrying out His righteous retributions. So let's just recount some things. Five takeaways here. I don't know it can be long with them. When we look at this passage, it could be a bunch of different things, but here's one thing I think of. You know, anger is, can still be righteous. God has, you know, the Bible says God is right, angry with the wicked every day, Psalm 711. God can be angry and remain righteous. The problem with us, we have a hard time being righteous when we're angry. Remember, Paul told us, be angry and sin not. We see God here showing His anger and His wrath, and He's ever-righteous. Just as a thought, as we're passing along today, it's okay to be angry, but be angry and sin not. Okay? God's angry too. Let's be angry at sin. 
Let's not have anger to fuel our own sin. Sometimes I might get angry because I'm selfish about something. I might get angry because maybe I want to I want to be I want to do something that's just about me and for my glory, or I didn't get something of my attention, so I'm angry. We should be angry for God's glory at sin and not let it become unrighteous, not let it become violent. God knows how to exhibit anger in a righteous way. Anger, angry at sin, but not to fuel sin. Number two, uh, we, are, we should be glad that we are already saved from wrath. Jesus took the wrath upon Him. He experienced God's wrath for you. So there's a lot of wrath that's going to be poured out. Let's again remember, for those of us that are in heaven, it's going to be because we trusted in the one who took God's wrath for us. He's our fire blanket. We're saved from wrath through Him. Romans 5, 9, much more being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. Number three, we need to sing deliverance songs right now. You know, there's a psalm that says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. We can, I mean, there's, I'm sure it's beautiful music, the harps of those martyrs and their song and their, all that's beautiful. I, again, I want to say this. Every time I hear really good music, my beautiful music, I'm trying to listen. I get Pandora and I try to have certain playlists to help me calm Charity down, put her down for a nap. And, you know, and I'm finding there's some classical music just outstanding wow, this is great. Wow, awesome. I feel like I'm in another world listening to this. Whatever the best music of man is, heavenly music is going to be so much better. So, but they have this beautiful music. Well, we can, we don't need to wait to try to generate. We'll be able to generate it then, but let's try to generate good music now. Psalm 50 says, praise him with all kinds of stuff. The harp, the trumpet, stringed instruments. Ephesians 5, Colossians 3 tells us to, to do that as well. Number four, of four or five takeaways here. The fourth one is God, let's remember as we look at this passage and as we go into the next chapter, let, chapter let's remember, God is who He says He is, not who you want Him to be. I wish so many people, I wish the whole world could know this. God is not who you think He is. God is not who you wish He was. God is who He says He is, whether you like it or not. Whether I like it or not, I'm still learning about God. He is, because all of us as Americans, we have the American mind of, well, I think things ought to be this way. So you go buy a car and you want a car exactly this way, this color, this size, this price, this type of interior, and we can tailor everything we touch as Americans. Everything. Our food, there's like 12 different brands of cereal, 12, there's all, we, I want this and that. We think we can tailor every single thing, but you can't tailor Him. He is who He is. And we have to accept him because he's the only one. And so he is, so, that, so when you look at this, the reason I say this is because sometimes people, liberal minds and modernist minds look at this like, well, how could God ever do this? There, I don't believe in a God who would judge. I don't believe in a God who, would, who, would, who, who, has, right, who has anger and, and judgment. It's like, well, then, then you're just believing your imagination. We do believe in a God who judges because He's in the Bible, but it's also, if you think long enough about the idea of judgment, what kind of person would not judge? A, du- a, a dummy? <laughs> Just like people say, love and you know, shouldn't hate, you should only love. A person who 
we, we need to have both love and hate. You don't hate people in the mean sense, but you hate the things that hurt people you love. There's certain things I need to, in fact, if I don't hate, if I, I love my wife so much that I do hate some things. I hate things that would hurt her. So the idea of trying to eliminate all these distasteful things or the idea of looking at, the, again, the stuff's feeding in our ears. I don't think God is, I don't think God would ever judge. Just forget that. Leave the Bible. I mean, God is both love, perfectly loving, perfectly just. And we found the perfect safety of Him in Him, in Christ. And we'll be able to stand safely on that crystal sea as well and not fear anything. And so that's who He is. We can look at Deuteronomy, amazing passages in Deuteronomy 32, 39 to 43. He says, I am the Lord, I kill, I make alive, and I heal. He's like, I do what I want. I do my business. And He's righteous in it. He is who he is, says he is, not who you want him to be. Number five, last thing, is all of this is on God's time. You see how he has everything dialed in? Everything that's happening from heaven is on God's time. He paces out these seal judgments. He paces out the trumpet ones. He paces out these last ones. And then to the end, he comes down and he'll defeat the, the Antichrist and the devil. Everything is on God's time. When I was a kid... I like to play football. I like to play flag football. I lived for sixth grade recess. How many of you kids, your favorite class is recess? Raise your hand if your favorite class is recess. Come on, homeschoolers. It means when you're not doing school, all right? And your second favorite class is lunch. Anybody? Yes. Catherine, yeah. All right. I just tried to cram my lunch down in sixth grade so I could get back out to recess, you know? I wanted to, I don't even know how much we had, how time we had, but I was like, gotta get out there and play football. You know, we had to Irving Elementary School over by my parents' house in Mesa. And when we went out there, it was the same routine every time. Fifth and sixth graders all get out there, and you line up. And there's, oh, I don't know who picked these guys. I don't know who decided who gets to be team captain one, team captain. I don't know, but it was never me. <laughs> but we got all lined up there, and there's this big shot kid and this other big shot kid. And they're, I'm going to pick first. Okay. And they'd pick. You'd go through the line. You, I get you. And he takes, I take you, I take you. The other guy says, I take you. And you get picked. And, and I just wanted to be on the winning team. I didn't care, you know. I want to be on the winning team. And I can sometimes already tell after about two picks if we were going to win. Ah, oh, he already got that guy, Michael Moreno. He's good, man. There was one guy who was a fourth grader that we let play with us, fifth and sixth graders. He was really good. He actually went to, he ended up, he was like an all, he ended up going to Mesa High, being, making a lot of records in football, played in the World ASU World Series and lost. But he was an outstanding athlete as he got older. But he was good. I'm like, oh, my glory, I got him. And so, but anyways, I didn't care. I just wanted to play flag football and win. That's what I wanted to do. And I'd go back to class a little more happy, you know, after winning. And so the, the whole point is this, is like I like to be on a winning team. You do too. But in a way, again, constantly telling ourselves we already are on the winning team. Who is he that overcometh? The word overcome is Nike. Nike, oh, the Greek. Who is, who is the Nikes? Who are the winners? Who is he that overcometh? It says in 1 John 5, 4 and 5. But he that believed that Jesus is the Son of God, this is a victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. We're already winners in Christ. So here he is, a marvel. I, we need to be marveled by God. We need to be fascinated by him. Well, this is 